Introduction to the 1998 edition of The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac. Introduction by David L. Schindler. In his first book, Catholicisme, Henri de Lubac states, By revealing the Father and by being revealed by him, Christ completes the revelation of man to himself. If this statement has a familiar ring, it is because it turns up in virtually the same form some 25 years later in the well-known paragraph 22 of Gaudium et Spes. The statement points us toward the unifying concern at the heart of de Lubac's theology, as well as to the nature of his permanent contribution to the church and culture. De Lubac's work originated in the face of what may be termed the problem of Catholic theology's exile from modern culture and of the secularism resulting from the mutual estrangement of the church and the world in the modern period. The key to de Lubac's response to this problem lies in the organic relation between theology, Christology, and anthropology affirmed in the statement. My purpose in this introduction is to say a word about the nature of de Lubac's contribution to modern theology and culture, especially in light of the mystery of the supernatural from 1965. My comments fall into four sections, the general theological and historical background to de Lubac's earlier Surnatural, 1946, his argument regarding nature and the supernatural, criticisms of the argument, and finally, the enduring significance of the thesis proposed by de Lubac, and indeed of the whole of his life's work for the current ecclesial cultural situation. Theological and historical background. Against the backdrop of his fundamental concern with secularism, de Lubac's work in the years leading up to Surnatural may be summarized in terms of a double purpose. On the one hand, he wished to diagnose accurately what, from the side of the church, had accounted for her failure to make genuine contact with the culture. What in the church's theology had blocked an effective presentation to the modern world of the abundant riches contained in the revelation of Jesus Christ, as understood in the Catholic tradition? On the other hand, and providing the larger context inspiring this analysis, de Lubac attempted to show in what these Catholic riches consisted and how they answered truly and comprehensively the deepest aspirations of modern humanity. Thus, Catholicisme, 1938, written for Yves Congar's ecclesiological series Unum Sanctum, was intended to retrieve the social aspects of dogma. Against a modern tendency to make the faith into a matter of private piety, this book attempted to exhibit the radically inclusive character of Catholicism, showing how its main doctrines could address humanity in all aspects of its existence. The book considered at great length the universal solidarity among human beings and what concerns their salvation and the significance of time and history. Corpus Mysticum, 1944, attempted to retrieve the link between the Eucharist and the Church in terms of the notion of the mystical body of Christ. 
The patristic and medieval periods understood that the physical body of Christ raised from the dead, the mystical body of Christ in the Eucharist, and the true body, corpus verum, of Christ, that is the church, brought into being through sharing the Eucharistic body, were all intrinsically related. Modern theology had shifted emphasis away from the relation between the Eucharistic body and the ecclesial body to the relation between the Eucharistic body and the physical body. The result was an individualized Eucharist, a greatly diminished sense of the essentially social implications of Christ's Eucharistic presence. Du Lubach's point, contrary to critics who feared otherwise, was not at all to reduce the importance of the real presence, but only to prevent one-sided emphasis on this from disintegrating the church Eucharistic mystery. The concerns of Le Drama de l'Humanise Athée, 1944, and De la Connaissance de Dieu, 1945, correlated with one another. The former explores the absence of God that lay at the heart of the contemporary cultural crisis. The latter, the implicit presence of God in every act of consciousness, as affirmed by all the great Christian theologians in the patristic and medieval periods, including both Augustine and Aquinas. De Lubach was convinced that, until the advent of the modern age, all humans were, in one way or another, so religious in outlook that the existence of a world and humanity without God, or something godly, was unthinkable. These two studies exposed the theological roots of the modern problem by showing, in positive and negative ways, why atheism is fundamentally unreasonable, hence dehumanizing. Several other articles during these early decades of de Lubach's professional life indicate the range and unity of his primary intuitions. On Apologetics and Theology, 1930, The Authority of the Church on Temporal Matters, 1932, Patriotism and Nationalism, 1933, Remarks on the History of the Word, Supernatural, 1934, in a 1936 article on Christian philosophy, de Lubac, finding points of departure in Gabriel Marcel, argued that there is indeed a truly Christian philosophy that is, in a sense, that could accommodate while integrating the positions of Blondel, Gilson, and Maritain. In a long essay, also in 1936, on some aspects of Buddhism, de Lubac expressed the conviction that with the exception of the unique fact in which we adore the vestige and the very presence of God, Buddhism is without doubt the greatest spiritual fact in the history of man. The book treats the basic question regarding the relation between selfless love in Buddhism and caritas in Christianity. In the early 1940s, de Lubac published articles that would eventually become the book Les Fondements Theologique des Missions. This book pointed out that the church not only has an obligation to take up the missionary task, but she is missionary of her proper essence. In an important article written in 1942 during the Nazi occupation of France, 
de Lubac reflected on the internal causes of the attenuation and disappearance of the sense of the sacred. De Lubac identifies four such causes. First, in the encounter between science and faith in modern culture, the Christian thinker's science is often much more fully developed than his or her faith, which often remains childish, as distinct from childlike. Second, a review of theological literature in recent centuries reveals that theology has been too preoccupied with the polemical concern of opposing heresies, with the result that it has not drawn sufficient positive nourishment from the mystery of the faith. The third cause is the separation of nature and the supernatural. De Lubach insists that although this separation was worked out in order to protect against errors such as Bayanism, which tended toward a confusion of the two orders, it was nonetheless something entirely modern, something never can canonized in the entire tradition from the fathers through Aquinas. Fourth and finally, there is the rationalist spirit of those theologians who, like museum curators, can inventory, arrange, and label everything, and who have answers for all objections, but who have, unfortunately, lost sight of the mystery of the Lord. This brief survey of de Lubach's writings, while hardly exhaustive, helps to exhibit the fundamental elan inspiring his work. De Lubach had drawn that elan from Joseph Marichal and especially Maurice Blondel as well as from Pierre Rousselot, though he followed none of them exactly, and he was aided by his dialogue with Gaston Fessard, the philosopher, and Henri Boulard, the fundamental theologian. De Lubac's work is apologetic in the deepest and truest sense. Within the context of a radical openness to all that is human, his theology shows how the fullness of Catholic dogma reaches to the heart of human reason, or again, how the supernatural reaches to the heart of nature. Catholicism, in other words, in its integral and not reduced version, opens to and comprehends all that is human, even as, in so doing, it first converts and indeed transforms all that is human. As we shall see, de Lubac never loses sight of the paradoxical nature of the claims indicated here. The paradox consisted in the fact that the church could best, most comprehensively and profoundly, speak to the heart of modern humanity, not by shrinking her message, but by displaying the beauty of her central fact in all of its fullness. The Mystery of the Supernatural We turn now to the technical core of the above concerns and intuitions of de Lubac the relation between nature and the supernatural. At the heart of his simultaneously capital C Catholic and lowercase Catholic engagement with secular culture lay the conviction of a radical heterogeneity between nature and the supernatural coincident with an intimate relation between them. Because nature is made for the supernatural and because God is more interior to me than I am to myself. Deus interior intimo meo, St. Augustine. 
Here, then, we approach the problem that occupied Surnatural. First of all, as de Lubac himself notes in his memoir, the language of nature and the supernatural is too abstract. And today, the question would be framed rather in terms of the relation between human nature and the covenants or the mystery of Christ. The problem in any case is that modern theology had tended to separate the orders of nature and grace, a tendency which expressed itself in the development of a tradition of separated theology, accompanied by a separated philosophy. This double separation both promoted and confirmed a growing remoteness of the inner realities of faith from the ordinary, worldly concerns of daily life. A rationalistic apologetics had eventually come to stand in the forecourt of specifically Christian doctrines, like the Trinity, even as these doctrines, considered in themselves, now became just so far arbitrary or irrational, that is, relatively esoteric, matters of interest only to Christians. It is essential to keep this problematic in mind when we consider the technical issues involved in de Lubach's explicit argument on the subject of the supernatural. On the one hand, if grace did not somehow, always already, touch the soul of every human being, the Christian fact would remain an essentially private matter of urgent concern only to those who are already believers. On the other hand, if the order of grace were not essentially gratuitous, that is, did not really add something to nature that could not be anticipated or claimed by nature itself, then the Christian fact would lose its newness and its proper character as divine gift. In either case, Christianity would lose its essentially missionary and, indeed, apologetic impetus. In the former case, men and women would have no good, that is, profound, reason for becoming Christian. And, in the latter case, they would, effectively, already be Christian. 1. De Lubac's thematic in Surnatural Etudes Historique, then, is how human persons in the natural order can be interiorly directed to the order of grace that fulfills them, without in the least possessing this grace in anticipation, and without being able at all to claim it for themselves. In this light, the book attempts, fundamentally, to show how what de Lubac calls the system of pure nature had come to prevail in Catholic theology. Neither the fathers nor the great scholastics had ever envisioned the possibility of a purely natural end for human persons attainable by their own intrinsic powers of cognition and volition, some natural beatitude of an order inferior to the intuitive vision of God. For these earlier thinkers, there was only one concrete order of history, that in which God had made humanity for himself, and in which human nature had thus been created only for a single destiny, which was supernatural. This unified vision began to unravel in the thought of theologians such as Denis the Carthusian, 1402-1471, and more pertinently, Cajetan, 1468-1534, to 1534, 
Although Denny's argued for a natural end of the human person, to which a supernatural end must be superadded, he nonetheless did so consciously in opposition to the teaching of St. Thomas. Cajetan, on the other hand, somewhat later in the same century, made the argument rather in terms of the thought of St. Thomas as a commentary on the latter. It was chiefly Cajetan, de Lubac says, who therefore introduced the idea of human nature as a closed and sufficient whole into Thomism, or more precisely, actually into the exegesis of St. Thomas himself, thus conferring upon it a kind of usurped authority. The idea of a pure nature, intensified in the wake of the naturalism of Bayus, 1513-1589, and Jansenius, 1585-1638, a state of pure nature, a hypothesis according to which human persons might have been created with an end proportionate to their natural powers, was seen as necessary to protect the gratuity of the supernatural. Affirmation of such a state, argued de Lubac, overlooked the decisive difference between the created human spirit and other natures. Still, he acknowledged this hypothetical system rendered eminent service to orthodoxy, offering more than a mere denial of the error it opposed. The system provided a positive explanation whose clarity and apparent logic satisfied the rational needs of the period. It also enabled Catholic theologians to defend the essential integrity of fallen human nature against the Protestantism that denied it. Despite this service, however, the system at the same time affected a separation between nature and the supernatural that would prove pernicious by rendering the latter seemingly superfluous. Although the system of pure nature was perceived to be a novelty when first developed, it eventually came to be taken for granted, such that, by the 20th century, rejecting it became synonymous with denying the gratuity of the supernatural. Surnatural is broken into four parts, which are pieced together from a number of earlier preparatory historical studies, hence the subtitle of the book. The first part, entitled Augustinianism and Bayanism, examines the interpretation of Augustine by Bayus and Jansenius, showing how these latter misconstrue Augustine's true intention. Influenced by a juridical, naturalistic way of thinking foreign to Augustine and to his disciples, including Thomas Aquinas, Bayus and Jansenius, according to de Lubac, had, in their different ways, denied the gratuity of the gifts made by God to Adam. De Lubac shows how the hypothesis of purely natural finality attributed to a pure spiritual nature was developed to ensure this gratuity. The second part of the book, Spirit and Freedom in the Theological Tradition, turns to an examination of one of the essential aspects of the spiritual nature, both human and angelic namely, its freedom of choice with respect to its end. This second part considers the tradition from the fathers up to the 17th century and provides further evidence for the claim that Aquinas, for example, never envisioned any finality for the created spirit but a supernatural one. 
The third part of the book examines the origins of the word supernatural, including the problematic epithet superaditum, something superadded, and the confusion of the supernatural with the miraculous, in the sense of a completely arbitrary addition. De Lubach shows in this section that the term supernatural was first used systematically by St. Thomas. Finally, Sir Naturel's fourth part offers six historical notes on St. Thomas and his followers, natural and supernatural desire, immediate natural vision, supernatural beatitude according to St. Thomas, what does St. Thomas wish to demonstrate by the natural desire to see God, has St. Thomas chosen Aristotle, Three exegeses on the desiderium naturale. In the conclusion, divine exigence and natural desire, de Lubach indicates why it is unnecessary to have recourse to the hypothetical system of pure nature to protect the gratuity of the beatific vision. He frames the argument in terms of paradox. This term, which, as we have suggested, is characteristic of de Lubach, is here used by him in its most fundamental meaning as the paradox of the created spirit who desires God essentially, but without demanding anything. A main point on which de Lubach rests his concluding argument concerns God's fundamental intention in creation. That is, God wished to communicate himself as absolute love and to inscribe this wish of his in the innermost being of the spiritual creature, so that the creature recognizes therein the call of God to love. The creature, therefore, instead of making demands itself, stands by its very essence under the demand of God, always already inscribed in its nature. De Lubach summarizes the import of his thesis strikingly by insisting that we are created not only for our own beatitude, but for the glorification of the God of grace and love. Hence, the paradox of the human person for whom beatitude is service, vision is adoration, freedom is dependence, possession is ecstasy. Thus, one who defines our supernatural end by possession, freedom, vision, and beatitude defines only one aspect, which indeed remains anthropocentric. 2. De Lubac's Le Mystère du Surnatural, the book here translated, was published in 1965, along with what he calls its twin, Augustinisme et Theologie Moderne. The two volumes serve primarily to clarify numerous objections to Surnatural, while separating the historical Augustinism and the dogmatic Mysterie, problematics. The latter book, he says, point by point, in the same order, and without changing the least point of doctrine, the article published under that title in Recherche de Sciences Religieuses in 1949. In 1960, as all hope of publishing in France still seemed fanciful, my old friend and colleague Gerard Smith of Marquette University and Dr. Anton Peggy, director of the Institut d'Etudes Medieves in Toronto, 
had offered to publish it in America. They took charge of everything, translation, printing, publishing. That is why the book is dedicated to Father Smith. The second, Augustinisme et Théologie Moderne, reproduced with similar fidelity the first part of the old Surnaturel, enlarging it with new texts. The 1949 article to which de Lubac refers here, he says, when it was intended not to repeat Surnaturel, but to complement it. Further, the article was meant not to stand alone, but to constitute the second part of a little book, the first part of which would contain precise responses to the objections made to Surnaturel. The general of the Jesuits warmly approved its publication, and the censors said that it provided very salutary clarifications for a better understanding of Surnaturel. 3. In 1980, de Lubac published a final book directly on the problematic of the nature-supernatural relation, Petit Catechis sur Nature et Grace. This book had begun as a short note written at the request of Philippe Delge, Secretary of the International Theological Commission, to help the commission in its work. The note, first published as an article in the French Communio, was later expanded and published in book form. The goal of the book, says de Lubac, was twofold. On the one hand, to summarize the doctrine of the supernatural, such as it emerged from my previous historical studies on the subject, in a simple and up-to-date way. On the other hand, to complete it with an exposition on grace, the liberator from sin. Various points of immediate historical cultural importance are treated in several appendices. Among these points is the question of the use of the term supernatural in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. De Lubac notes that, although the term is used only 14 times in these documents, because the Council generally prefers concrete language, the Council nonetheless maintained the distinction between nature and the supernatural, and consequently defended the gratuity of the vocation to divine communion, but without recourse to the hypothesis of a purely natural order. Criticisms the general history of the reactions to surnatural is well known. The term new theology, which came to be associated with the argument of de Lubac, was in fact coined by one of the critics of the book, Father Garigau Lagrange. In 1950, de Lubac was asked by the general of the Jesuits to stop teaching and to give up working at Recherche des Sciences Religieuses. The order was given to withdraw three of his books, Surnatural, Corpus Mysticum, and De la Connaissance de Dieu, as well as the volume of Recherches containing the article on the Mystère du Surnatural from Jesuit libraries and from the trade. This occurred shortly after the appearance of Pope Pius XII's encyclical Humani Generis. This encyclical is often interpreted as having condemned the main argument of surnatural. French theologian Michel Salle, however, states, Contrary to a tenacious legend that continues to circulate, this encyclical, far from condemning the views set forth here, ratified them by repeating on its own account one key sentence from 
Delubach's 1949 article on the supernatural. Delubach himself notes that, in addition to repeating this sentence, the encyclical likewise did not use the term pure nature that a number of highly placed theologians were accusing him of misunderstanding and which they wanted to have canonized. Furthermore, when Pius XII learned through de Lubac's superiors and the mediation of Cardinal Bea of the continuing criticisms of de Lubac, he had Cardinal Bea send a letter to de Lubac, whose every word he dictated, in which he thanked de Lubac for the work accomplished up until then and encouraged him about continuing such work since it promised much fruit for the church. In any event, the controversy provoked by the book, as already suggested, concerned especially the question whether its argument implied a confusion of the orders of nature and grace, and hence a denial of the gratuity of the supernatural order. To clarify the argument of Sir Natural in response to such criticisms, de Lubac, in his 1949 article, lay more explicit stress on the twofold gratuitousness, the twofold initiative, or the twofold gift of God, that is, creation elevation. One of the most thorough and thoughtful critiques of Sir Natural was that by Karl Rahner. Rahner agreed with de Lubac's thesis, insofar as it rejected the older extrinsicism that made grace into a kind of accidental appendage to an already constituted nature. Rahner, however, feared that de Lubac's solution risked fusing the gratuity of creation with the gratuity of God's self-revelation, thereby leveling the orders of nature and grace. To avoid this problem, Rahner proposed his well-known theory of a supernatural existential planted by God at the heart of our nature from its creation, but conceptually distinct from nature. Given the limits here, I record only the heart of de Lubac's response as indicated in the mystery of the supernatural. To the extent that this existential is conceived as a kind of medium or a linking reality, one may object that this is a useless supposition, whereby the problem of the relationship between nature and the supernatural is not resolved, but only set aside. The issue between Rahner and de Lubac, then, takes the form of a difference regarding the priority of a supernatural existential, as distinct from paradox, as the best way to conceive human persons in their concrete, constitutive relation to God. This difference between the two theologians has played itself out further over the years in terms of controversies such as that concerning the existence and meaning of anonymous Christianity, whether there is a distinctively Christian ethics, the church-world relation, and the nature of the missionary task of the church. Another implication of the charge that de Lubac had confused the orders of nature and grace was that he thereby also denied the integrity of nature or the natural law. The heart of de Lubac's response to this criticism was that the criticism itself confused the integrity of nature with a would-be purity of nature. For the pertinent point is that the legitimate and, on a Catholic understanding, necessary, integrity of nature is to be found only within and not outside 
the existential conditions of the one concrete order of history, hence only as always already affected by both grace and sin. This response indicates also the principle of de Lubach's reply to the similar charge that emphasis on the single supernatural end of the human person evacuates any penultimate ends of their legitimate integrity. Another important criticism by Thomists concerned whether de Lubach wrongly attributed an Aristotelian nature to Aquinas. That is, both by construing the Aristotelian nature in a too avaroistic sense, that is, too closed in on itself, and by ascribing such a nature too simply to Aquinas. Furthermore, in construing nature as closed, de Lubac was forced, in order to maintain his thesis, to rest his argument about a single supernatural finality on the human person's exceptional character as spirit, hence, strictly speaking, as not a thing of nature at all. Gerard Smith, however, pointed out that Aquinas's central principle of essay, in fact, entailed a significant transformation of Aristotle. Smith argued that recognition of essay would thus enable de Lubac to see more harmony between the Aristotelian and the patristic views of nature. Presumably, it would also make it less necessary for de Lubac to draw such a sharp dichotomy between physical nature and spiritual nature. The sharp distinction drawn by de Lubac in Surnatural between the non-human and the human is related also to a later criticism that de Lubac neglects somewhat material creation and hence the cosmological dimension of creation and redemption. The Present Ecclesial Cultural Situation After the years of controversy and debate, has de Lubac's theology of nature and grace been vindicated? What is its significance for the current ecclesial cultural situation? In answering this question, it is necessary first of all to distinguish de Lubac's basic thesis, and indeed the fundamental elan of his work, from the detailed historical, philosophical, and theological claims in terms of which he works out the thesis. Thus, for example, the question of whether de Lubac was entirely accurate in his interpretation of commentators on Aquinas, such as Cajetan and Suarez, whether the Aristotelian nature in fact tends towards avaroism, whether a non-spiritual nature is simply closed in upon itself, whether Aquinas himself was entirely successful in integrating the Aristotelian nature with the patristic sense of the imago Dei, whether a supernatural existential in the creature is needed to secure the required gratuitousness of the order of grace. The vexed questions regarding potentia obenitialis and the distinction between imago and similitudo, datum optimum and donum perfectum, and datio and donatio. All of these questions are legitimate and hence remain matters concerning which conscientious theologians and philosophers will continue to differ. After all, what is most fundamentally at stake in all of these questions is the mystery of God's creation and redemption in Jesus Christ. It is entirely in the spirit of de Lubac himself, therefore, that such questions continue to be asked. 
so long as they are asked in the context of service to this mystery, in the context, that is, of giving account for the hope that is in us, 1 Peter 3, 15, 16, and not of dominating the mystery through would-be exhaustive rationalization. What is most important in assessing the enduring significance of de Lubach's argument, in other words, is that we not lose sight of the main point of that argument, namely, to secure theologically the truth of creation as understood in the gospel, which requires a non-divine subject that is nonetheless always already in the one order of history invited to participate in the divine Trinitarian communio, revealed in Jesus Christ. De Lubach sees it necessary to insist on the simultaneity, and hence just so far the paradox, of the two elements of the twin claim implied here. On the one hand, a gratuity of grace distinct from and unanticipated by, but not merely superadded to, human nature. On the other hand, a human nature always already called to a divine vocation in Jesus Christ, and hence just so far embedded from the outset in a supernatural order. In the careful expression of one of the early reviewers of Surnatural, the supernatural is not abnormal. It does not point to something adventitious, but it remains gratuitous, even if it is deeply rooted in our nature. Any alternative proposal to de Lubach's solution must show how it can better account for the double burden presented by the gospel of an utterly gratuitous gift on God's part, coupled with the human person's profound, non-arbitrary desire for this gift, both of these present being already at the beginning of each creature's existence. Once we have clarified what is basic to de Lubach's theological project, we can see that it has been vindicated. Indeed, we need only recall the text from Gaudium et Spes, with which we began this introduction. Christ the Lord, Christ the new Adam, in very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, fully reveals man to himself and brings to light his most high calling. Number 22. As is widely known, nearly every encyclical of Pope John Paul II invokes this text in a prominent way. Indeed, John Paul has stated on several occasions, referring to this text, that an organic relation between theo-christocentrism and anthropocentrism is perhaps the most fundamental principle taught at Vatican II. My suggestion is that this is likewise the most fundamental principle in the life work of Henri de Lubac. Let it be clear, whether the text from Gaudium et Spes was consciously taken over from de Lubac's Catholicis is not the main point here, nor is it necessary to offer a detailed genetic history of de Lubac's influence at the Council, nor need we ponder the details of Waltia's friendship with de Lubac at the Council or Pope John Paul II's later appointment of de Lubac as cardinal. The burden of my suggestion, rather, rests above all on the intrinsic nature of de Lubac's basic theological achievement relative to those of the Council. 
Here, in addition to Dulubox and the Council's near-identical affirmation of an organic relation between Christology and anthropology, we should also consider the nature of the Church as mystery and the universality of the call to holiness and the Catholicity of the Church as the sacrament of communion with God and of unity among all men, Lumen Gentium. The consequent importance of the world and of the vocation of the laity, apostolicam actuositatem, the nature of divine revelation as the truth, first, not of a dogmatic proposition, but of the person of Jesus Christ, Dei Verbum, the urgency of the problem of atheism, Gaudium et Spes, the essentially missionary nature of the church, Agentis Divinitus, the importance of dialogue with non-Christians, Nostra Etate, and the fundamentally Marian nature of the church. This is not at all to suggest that these conciliar themes are unique to the theology of de Lubac. The point is only that the themes are central to his life work. Indeed, that most of them embroiled him in controversies throughout the early decades of the century and on into the council itself. The bishops and theologians at the council who were responsible for the preparation of the council documents were surely not ignorant of these controversies and, consequently, the similarities between de Lubac's theological emphases and those of the council were hardly coincidental. But a further question remains regarding the contemporary significance of the mystery of the supernatural. Who holds a pure nature hypothesis any longer? And if no one holds this hypothesis, is the book still what the French call actuel? De Lubac himself points the way to an appropriate answer to this question in his preface to the book, the dualist or separatist thesis proposed by theologians. He says, has finished its course. Nonetheless, the thesis may be only just beginning to bear its bitterest fruit. As fast as professional theology moves away from it, it becomes so much more widespread in the sphere of practical action. While wishing to protect the supernatural from any contamination, people had in fact exiled it altogether, both from intellectual and social life, leaving the field free to be taken over by secularism. Today, that secularism, following its course, is beginning to enter the mind even of Christians. De Lubac goes on to indicate that this secularist tendency is also fueled today by the immanentism that is but the obverse of the modern dualist coin. De Lubac's observation here seems remarkably prescient. On the one hand, it seems clear that few today would bother themselves over the question of pure nature in the technical terms argued in modern theology let alone defend vigorously anything like a simply pure nature, even if only hypothetically. At the same time, it seems equally clear that a softer, or what may be called methodological, version of the pure nature theory remains widespread. How so? Illustrations may be offered with respect to both the conception of apologetics, dominance in the social-cultural order, and the critical methods, characteristic of the academy. Central to the contemporary notion of apologetics is the metaphor of common ground, that is, 
Given a pluralistic society that includes non-believers, non-Christians, and non-Catholic Christians, Catholics and their engagement with the social cultural order must establish a common ground which enables meaningful communication with such persons. Moreover, the establishment of such common ground entails some significant, that is, strategic, sense of abstraction from theological differences, from the ultimate or religious end which these various groups conceive differently. Something analogous happens in the academy. Each of its disciplines involves a certain methodical abstraction. X must be temporarily bracketed in order to get clear first about Y. This methodical abstraction has probably been most resolutely practiced in the natural or physical sciences. But the pertinent point is that all the disciplines in some significant sense characteristically bracket revelation or the Christian facts for critical methodological purposes. More generally, we have all frequently heard the suggestion that we should first seek to ascertain what reason alone or the empirical evidence alone has to tell us before going on to introduce the Christian perspective. Now, the first thing to be said about these tendencies is that each contains an essential, ineliminable truth. Certainly no claim regarding the relation between nature and grace made in the name of de Lubach would permit us to deny that some notion of common ground is necessary for communication in a pluralistic society, that some methodical abstraction is necessary for intelligent inquiry, or that some significant sense of appeal to reason, and indeed to nature, is appropriate and often even necessary prior to an explicit appeal to revelation. Nonetheless, the subtle but absolutely crucial point required by de Lubach's theology is that none of these tendencies can any longer be rightly understood as implying neutrality with respect to the truth revealed by God in Jesus Christ. Neither any common ground, nor any methodical abstraction, nor finally any appeal to reason or nature alone is ever, from its first actualization, innocent of implications, positive or negative, relative to this truth. I am not suggesting, of course, that one cannot legitimately abstract from the order of grace in the name of common ground, critical method, or reason. The point and it is fundamental for de Lubach, is that this abstraction must not be taken to imply that the order of grace is to be subsequently simply added to what has been first abstracted. See the idea of the superaditum. The fact that the superaddition occurs now for methodological reasons does not render it any less problematic as a false abstraction, hence as wrongly autonomous, relative to the order of grace. How then do we determine whether abstraction has been made truly in the spirit of de Lubach's theology of nature and grace? The crucial question is whether, in abstracting and seeking a common ground and appealing to reason, one remains dynamically open, both in form, in terms of one's interior disposition, and in content, in terms of the object of one's inquiry to the realities of grace and sin that are always already operative 
in the one historical order. The fact that the realities of grace and sin may sometimes, for legitimate methodological purposes, be left temporarily unthematic does not mean that these realities in the meantime cease to operate, both in the inquiring subject and in the object of inquiry. The crucial test, in a word, is whether one's abstraction remains open extrinsically or intrinsically to the order of grace. Only an intrinsically open abstraction can finally realize the Catholic and Catholic truth envisaged by de Lubach. Spelling out the difference between the two kinds of abstraction indicated here in each of the various contexts indicated is, of course, a delicate and excruciatingly difficult task. It suffices for our purpose only to draw attention to the continuing relevance, indeed urgency, of the Lubach's theology in and for the present ecclesial cultural situation. As de Lubach himself said, long after the cruder, more explicit version of the pure nature hypothesis has died, the hypothesis now seems to be bearing its bitterest fruit. The explicit and resolute atheism of the modern period reinforced, unintentionally to be sure, by a theoretical pure nature, has been largely replaced in our social, cultural, and academic milieu by an implicit or methodological atheism, reinforced now by an apologetic, strategic, or methodological pure nature. Thus, it is clear that the issues raised by the work of de Lubach, and in particular by his book, The Mystery of the Supernatural, are scarcely arcane matters of only historical interest. On the contrary, the issues still go to the heart of the church and her contemporary engagement with humanity, and indeed with all aspects of creation and culture. This new presentation in English of the mystery of the supernatural, which now for the first time includes translation of the abundant Latin texts, is as timely and important as the original publication in 1965. David L. Schindler, John Paul II, Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family.